Tonight we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. And so two weeks ago we set the stage by looking at the when it was written, why it was written, uh, the social and historical factors that played into uh, not necessarily when Mark wrote his Gospel, but in uh, the social and historical factors that came into play when Jesus was on earth uh, doing his earthly ministry in the run-up to his ultimate uh, crucifixion, death, and then resurrection from the dead. And then last week we looked at the first 13 verses, and so tonight we're going to be in Mark 1, uh, 14 through 20. I can still remember with clarity sitting in my dorm room in App State in the spring of 2000. And three, I was huddled around a TV with a few friends, and we were waiting uh, for some much-anticipated news to become official. Finally, off-screen from where the cameras were focused, a door opened, and flashbulbs started popping, and people started to stand and look, and in walked Roy Williams to be announced as the new head coach of the North Carolina Tar Heel men's basketball team. If you're a Duke or a State fan, you really enjoyed the Matt Doherty era, and you maybe have not been a big fan of the Roy Williams era. But after saying no to his alma mater, North Carolina, and his mentor, Coach Dean Smith, in 2000, Coach, Coach Williams came home as the rightful heir to, the, to inherit the program that Coach Smith and Coach Guthridge had built. And there was much rejoicing and anticipation among Carolina fans of what Roy Williams would be able to do in the university that he grew up in and loved so dearly. And over the intervening 16 years, Coach Williams has restored the program to its rightful place as one of the best in the country, and that's not really up for debate. And he has continued to submit his place as one of the best coaches in college basketball history. I rarely bring up sports topics because I like a lot of teams that everyone else hates. I'm a Carolina Tar Heel fan, and I like all the New England sports teams. So the Patriots, nobody likes. The Red Sox, nobody likes. The Celtics, nobody likes. The Bruins, nobody likes. And I, so I don't ever really, but this is fitting. Because there was anticipation. There was this palpable sense of, I mean, what will it look like when the person who is best fit for the coaching job at North Carolina comes back to coach? And in much the same way, but in a much more important, you could say infinitely more important and meaningful way. In Mark 1, 14 through 20, Jesus announces the arrival of the kingdom of God. This is the one that all of the scriptures have foretold of. This is the one who everyone anticipated arriving on the stage of history at some point. Now, there was no fanfare and there were no flashbulbs popping and there was an, an introductory press conference where Jesus fielded questions from an interested pool of reporters about his plans for the kingdom of God. But it is no stretch to say that the reverberations of his announcement are still being felt today and will continue to be felt into eternity. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that your son came and he announced the arrival of your kingdom. He announced the inauguration of your plans for a people, a redeemed people who would love and worship you. And so, Father, as we gather tonight, as we open Mark's gospel, I pray that we would be encouraged. Encouraged that when Jesus announced the kingdom, he knew those of us who would trust and believe. He could see those of us who would become his brothers and sisters because of his finished work on our behalf. And so, 
the kingdom of God is not something out there that we necessarily wait for. It's something that we even begin to experience right now. And so tonight as we work through the text, as we think through what it means to be a follower of you, would you give us grace and wisdom and understanding so that we would love and serve you more? In Christ's name, amen. And before we get into the text tonight, I wanted to just briefly address something that may have at some point either confused you or left you perhaps puzzled. Have you ever wondered why the Gospels seem to be contradictory in how they relay the events around Jesus' life? Like Mark starts and then is gone off on this wild, almost seemingly random remembrance of the life of Jesus. Luke is very detailed and very specific because Luke is going to carry through all the way through the book of Acts. Mark doesn't follow the same outline as the other three Gospels, nor for that matter are they all in lockstep in some linear timeline. That's because each was written for a different audience and for a different purpose, but they were all written to show that Jesus is the Son of God who came to save sinners and inaugurate the kingdom of God. The NIV Study Bible provides clarity on this when it says, The diversity in our Gospels can prove challenging at times, but a careful and charitable reading reveals that they do not contradict one another. Rather, they complement one another. God has used four different early Christian leaders to help his people understand the many facets of Jesus' life and teaching. So it is that the Gospel of Mark, as the ESV Study Bible notes, as it introduces the Gospel of Mark, this is what the ESV Study Bible says, the Gospel doesn't possess a continuous storyline, but is a collection of discrete units. The book is a collage or mosaic of the life of Jesus. The best way to negotiate this format is to regard oneself as Mark's traveling companion as he assembles his documentary on the life of Christ. The main unifying element of Mark's gospel is Christ himself. So let's get to walking. This is what Mark records in Mark 1, 14 through 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, easy for me to say, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. In those first few verses, Mark 14 and 15, Mark almost with a passing glance just announces that John has been arrested. Now the story of John's arrest is going to show up later in Mark's gospel, but what that does for Mark as he's writing this is it allows him to shift his focus from John's preparatory ministry for Christ to arrive. And now all of Mark's focus for the remainder of his gospel will be on Jesus. And Jesus comes into Galilee and he begins to proclaim the gospel of God. He announces the arrival of God's kingdom and he calls people to repent and believe in the gospel as a means of gaining entrance into the kingdom. Now, if you've been with us and either here in person or you've listened and caught up online, it's going to come as no surprise that Mark's account of Jesus's announcement 
ties Jesus' ministry to fulfilling prophecy that is found in Isaiah. Now, as we've walked this thing out over the past two weeks, and you're going to see again tonight, a lot of what Mark is working to do is show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. And he is going to lean heavily on Isaiah to make that point. Isaiah was the most influential prophet in the New Testament. And Isaiah is the most influential Old Testament reference that Mark uses in his gospel. And so this is what the NIV Study Bible says about this, uh, the proclamation, the announcement, and the calling of people to repent and believe. This is what the NIV Study Bible says. The combination of the time when God acts, its nearness, his inbreaking reign, and calls to repent and believe is uniquely characteristic of Isaiah's announcement of the new exodus, which Jesus implies is now fulfilled in him. And this is found in Isaiah 40, verses 9 and 10, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10, Isaiah 46, verse 13, Isaiah, 46, Isaiah 49, verse 8, Isaiah 51, verse 5, Isaiah 52, verse 7, Isaiah 53.1, Isaiah 56.1, and Isaiah 60.22. And if you missed any of those, I'll give them to you after the fact. Jesus is fulfilling the new Exodus. And we talked about how Jesus is working, or Mark is working, to show Jesus as the leader of a new Exodus. And this new Exodus will not be leading the people out from under oppressive and tyrannical government rule it will be an exodus that leads them out of bondage to satan sin and death and so mark writes and we were able to piece together that he's pointing back to isaiah and jesus fulfillment of this new exodus that he will lead as jesus begins to announce the arrival of the kingdom of god there's widespread confusion and questions among the jews of jesus day now, if you remember back to two weeks ago when we first kind of unpacked all that was going on in and around the life of Jesus as he began his ministry, there were four very active philosophies or sects or groups of Jewish people working and ministering in Jerusalem. They, they were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. And so they all had a different way of reading and interpreting the Old Testament and its implications for when and how and what the Messiah would do when he arrived on the scene. But the NIV Study Bible, again, and if I could just pause here, I've pled with you the first week. I'm going to keep pleading with you. It is worthwhile to make an investment in a good study Bible to help you understand what's going on in the text. Uh, you can show up and probably preach along with me if you invest in the NIV and the ESV study Bible. Uh, you could probably co-preach with me if you were a guy, but that's another story for another time. Anyway, this is what the NIV study Bible says about all these different groups and their understandings of who and what the Messiah would do and about the kingdom of God. It says, although understood differently, meaning the kingdom of God by various Jewish groups, it often included God's powerful new exodus deliverance of a purified remnant to live in peace under a renewed covenant in true obedience to the law in a restored land with a rebuilt temple in which God's returned presence dwelt and they would be united under a revived messianic Davidic monarchy. 
And so as wide and as varied as all these groups' understandings and interpretations of the Old Testament scriptures were concerning the Messiah, those nine key factors seem to play into everybody's understanding of what the kingdom of God would look like when the Messiah arrived. But there were also some groups who tied the kingdom of God to the outpouring of the Spirit and the resurrection from the dead. So that wasn't as prevalent, but it was also thought that when the Messiah arrived and the kingdom of God arrived, those nine elements would be present, but there were some who believed it would also be marked by an outpouring of the Spirit of God on the people of God and by the resurrection of the dead to enjoy life with God. Now hopefully as we continue to unpack, and this should be about the last week of really some foundational work to get the Gospel of Mark really moving forward, but this should help provide increasing clarity for us over the remainder of the year that we're in the Gospel of Mark for understanding how Jesus is received and treated by both his family and his disciples, the religious elite, and the ruling authorities as the Gospel of Mark unfolds. And so there was not just widespread agreement that if Jesus walked in announcing the kingdom of God, everyone was in agreement on what that meant. There were various understandings of what that could look like. And so not only was Jesus' announcement of the kingdom of God unexpected and questioned by the religious leaders of his day, but it was also a subversive message to the Romans who ruled over them. We're not going to go back and retrace out the emperors of Rome, but Tiberius, who was the emperor when Jesus was on earth doing his ministry, Tiberius is the Roman emperor who instituted the thought that the emperor or the ruler was God. And so he began to announce in his ascension to the throne that whoever occupied the power in Rome, whoever was the emperor of Rome, was no mere man, but he was a god and was to be worshipped as such. So for this man, Jesus, from the outer regions of an otherwise overlooked province of Rome to announce the kingdom of God had arrived was to announce a kingdom in direct opposition and rival to Roman rule. This message, as it started to spread, would put Jesus on the radar of those ruling Judea on Rome's behalf. As the Romans, we've learned throughout history, were quick and ruthless in putting down any hint of sedition or uprising that threatened the Pax Romana or the peace of Rome. And so not only does Jesus' announcement of the kingdom of God create questions among his own people, but it is a direct confrontation of the ruling kingdom of the day. When you have an emperor sitting on the throne who says that he is divine, and you have another man from the outskirts of your kingdom announcing that he is here to inaugurate the kingdom of God, the two cannot coexist. One is the kingdom of God and one is not. So you could imagine the questions that would have swirled around Jesus as he begins his ministry. People would have looked and thought, could this be the long-anticipated Messiah? Will he be the one to restore Israel to her former glory and drive out the foreigners who rule over them? Or, like so many different rulers who had arisen during the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, 
would he prove to be a counterfeit who would lead his gullible followers to an untimely death at the hands of Rome? Only time will tell. So this is the announcement of the kingdom of God. This is Jesus saying, I am the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament has pointed to. But here's the reality of Jesus' announcement and what we're going to see throughout Mark's gospel. He always fails to meet the expectations of who people think he should be and what people think he should do. He is operating as the one inaugurating the kingdom of God. And because he inaugurates the kingdom of God, it sets everything he does up in opposition to the kingdoms of the world. And so he will always fail to meet the expectations and the desires both of the Romans who rule over them and his own family and friends and fellow Jews. Then in Mark 16 through 20, this is what it says. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Jesus immediately begins calling men to follow him as his public ministry begins in earnest in Mark's gospel. And in verses 16 through 20, what we see is the importance and premium that Mark is going to place on discipleship in the life of those who belong to the kingdom of God. And throughout the rest of Mark's gospel, he's going to work to fully display, to fully show what the true cost of discipleship is. Not only that, but in this first call to four fishermen, we see Jesus' intention to reconstitute or recommission the true Israel of God, the church, around himself. The new people of God will not be found gathered around the Mosaic law or around the circumcision of the flesh or around the temple priesthood or around the old covenant sacrificial system. When Jesus calls men to himself to follow him, he is reconstituting the people of God with himself at the center, which is a claim to his divinity. You do not reconstitute the people of God around yourself and live to tell about it if you're an imposter or a liar. But if you are God in the flesh, you can call people to yourself and have them follow you and begin to show what life in the kingdom of God is going to look like. Now God's people will be identified as those who confess and repent of their sins and live submitted to and following Jesus. When Jesus walks along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee and he calls Andrew, Peter, James, and John to follow him, again, no surprise, but he is fulfilling from Isaiah more of the new Exodus theme. And so Isaiah tells the story from Isaiah 1 to the end of Isaiah 66 of the hope of God's people that there will be a Messiah, there will be a righteous branch from the stump of Jesse, there will be one who will come to lead God's people in a new exodus. 
And so what you'll see throughout Mark's gospel is how so much of Jesus' life and ministry mimics or mirrors the original Exodus when God led his people out of Egypt. And so in Exodus 6-7, we see God call Israel to himself and promise to deliver his people from Egypt when he says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And after leading them in Exodus from Egypt, God tells the Israelites that he will teach them his ways in Deuteronomy 4.1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. So we see the same concern of the first Exodus at play during the new Exodus. Namely, that God calls a people to himself. Jesus will spend the remainder of the book of Mark teaching the disciples what it looks like to live as God's chosen people. And then he will ultimately give them not a temporary land of rest, but an eternal land of rest in his presence in the new heavens and the new earth. And so Jesus' ministry is a new exodus that's taking place. Therefore, when we begin to think about the cost of discipleship in our own life or what discipleship looks like in the church, we have to move past this thinking that seems to say that salvation and baptism are the finish line of disciple-making. Salvation and baptism aren't the finish line of disciple-making. They're the beginning. They're just the very start of the race of disciple-making. A healthy disciple should not only be sharing their faith and seeking to see others come into the, into the kingdom, but they should always be working through the power of the Spirit in their life to be growing in what it means to walk in the ways of Jesus. And it is here in the call of the disciples that we begin to see just the outer fringes of what the full cost of discipleship really is. What do these men leave behind to follow Jesus? First, they leave their jobs. They leave the security of the fishing business for the uncertainty of what lies ahead as they follow Jesus. There was a certain comfort that came from knowing that there seemed to be, by God's good design, that there were always going to be fish in the Sea of Galilee. And as long as there were fish and you could catch those fish, you could feed your family, you could provide for your family, you could support the temple, you could do all the things that made life right and good and healthy for a faithful Jew of the day. But when Jesus calls, those men all leave behind their livelihood for the uncertainty of following this man who just says the kingdom of God is here, the gospel is to repent and believe. Come follow me. So there's a, there's a real cost. And if we're honest with ourselves just for a moment, a lot of us have never had to figure in the cost of a job with following Jesus. Now, there are some in here who graciously gave up jobs and moved their lives here for various church plants in our city. And they've seen God be faithful to provide those jobs and to meet their needs. And every step along the way where there were bouts of uncertainty, I'm sure, or feelings of why God brought you here to not give you a job, God was faithfully working to keep people employed and to keep the mission of God going forward. 
But what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is this. We should never hold so tightly to the security that our job provides that we aren't willing to weigh the call of Christ to follow him. That is part of the cost of discipleship. And the second thing we see is that we know for sure about James and John from this account, and we're going to pick it up from the rest of the disciples' account. But we see with James and John that they leave their family behind as well. Gone is the security and help that the family unit of the first century provided. Now, if we're honest, most of us probably couldn't wait to move away from where our parents lived and had eminent domain over our lives and were always trying to creep in and establish rule and dominance over what our schedules would be and when we would work and who we would marry and all those things. And you can, we can all go to counseling later for that. But what I'm trying to say when we consider the cost of discipleship is, is this. Is that as Jesus reconstitutes Israel around himself, as Jesus reconstitutes the people of God around himself, we now go first and foremost to Jesus for our provision, for our security, for all the things we used to depend on our family by blood to provide for us. Jesus, God himself, becomes our primary source of provision. You hear it in the model prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. The disciples will leave behind not only the security of their job, but the comfort of knowing what it is to have family to meet their every need. And they will begin to learn as they follow Jesus what it is to depend on the Father and the Son for their provision. And so here we see Jesus fulfilling yet another role of Isaiah's faithful servant. As the NIV Study Bible says, much of Jesus' task included teaching thereby enabling Israel or the disciples and those of us who make up the true Israel of God to become the light to the nations God had always intended. You can see that in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 4, Isaiah 49, verse 6, Isaiah 50, verse 4, and Isaiah 60, verse 3. And so Jesus calls these men to himself to reconstitute the people of God around him and his teaching and his finished work. But we also begin to see the cost of what it is to follow Jesus. That there's never to be a job we hold on to so tightly that we say, surely God would not want me to give this up to go do this. And it also means that we begin to position ourselves where our first and primary call for dependence is not to our immediate family, but our first and immediate call for dependence is to our Heavenly Father. There are needs that my own personal family cannot meet, but there is never a need I will face that my Heavenly Father cannot and will not meet in the wisdom and the graciousness of His sovereign, all-knowing, perfect plan. So this is the invitation of a disciple leave it all behind and trust that jesus isn't lying about the kingdom of god being
here. Leave it all behind and trust that wherever he takes you and wherever he leads you will be better than anything you do leave behind. As I was preparing and thinking through all of this, the one movie maybe you could guess that came to mind was Braveheart, right? I mean, like, there's like three movies that every pastor is contractually obligated (laughs) to reference in a year. Uh, Braveheart, uh, The Patriot, and The Passion. Like, you at least got to get through those three movies once in your preaching cycle for a year. If you recall the scene where Mel Gibson is out on his horse and he's riding back and forth among this ragtag group of soldiers who want to defend Scotland from the encroaching English empire. And he's riding back and forth and he begins to speak. And look, they can see the enemy in front of them. They know that they're outmatched. They know that to follow this guy who has seemingly come out of nowhere, they know that to follow him into this battle is more than likely to sign their own death warrant. But it doesn't stop them. And this is what Wallace says as he's riding back and forth like a madman. I want to do this at some point, just paint myself up blue and go regale this out somewhere. He says, hey, and I'm going to try to be Scottish, a fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least for a while. And in dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance? to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Let's just run out the door now, right? (laughs) Ah, freedom! This is the summons of discipleship. When Jesus invites those first disciples and when he's invited us into his story, it's been you can live You can live a peaceful life and you can die in good old age. But would you trade it all? Would you trade it all for just one moment to live on mission for my kingdom, even if it costs you everything? Not only is Jesus, when he calls us to follow him, as Bonhoeffer would say, when Jesus bids a man, he bids him come and die. But it's also a summons into a fight. When we become followers of Jesus we enter into a war that is as old as time itself and every day we answer in some part this very question that William Wallace asked all those Scots on that hill and that Jesus is inviting us to ask ourselves every day do I want to play it safe or do I want to risk it all for just one chance One chance to be full-fledged, fully committed to the mission of God in the world. Last week, we talked about how occasionally we need to take the Jesus that we set up in our hearts and our minds that we worship, and we need to hold that Jesus out, and we need to examine that Jesus To see if the Jesus that we worship without having to think much about it still lines up with the Jesus that is portrayed truly and accurately in the Scriptures. Like, are we following Jesus' light? Are we following Jesus 2.0? Like, we always have to be willing. And I talked about how if you're going to re-roof a house, 
you always have to drop a fresh straight line as you put the shingles down to make sure you don't end up with some random zigzag pattern of shingles. It's not enough just to have the first line be straight. The next line has to be made sure that it's straight because at any point, if the lines begin to move, the job becomes compromised. So in much the same way that we need to hold out Jesus, the Jesus that we just think of in our hearts and in our minds, and examine him up against the reality of who Scripture says that he is, so too it is beneficial for us to occasionally hold out the kingdom of God and make sure that the kingdom of God as we understand it and as we think about it and as it influences our day-to-day life lines up with how the kingdom of God is talked about in Scripture. In the South, there are three idols that lie just beneath the surface of our everyday living. They kind of prop up the entirety of our social life, our understanding of life in the South. And if we were to be honest, and maybe you've thought about that last week after we talked about hospitality, you're going to think that this week. These idols, like all idols, are almost impossible for us to see unless someone points them out. So last week we talked about Southern hospitality and how Southern hospitality actually stands in contradiction to biblical hospitality because Southern hospitality seeks to shrink the table to more clearly define who's in and who's out and to not welcome anyone new in. Biblical hospitality seeks to grow the table by going to the margins and finding the ones that would never be considered insiders and bringing them in through the finished work of Jesus to a family that they should never be a part of. So that's what we talked about last week with Southern Hospitality. But this week in Mark 1, 14 through 20, we see Jesus confront the second of three idols, and it is the idol of Southern identity. And this idol consists of regionalism and family as the controlling influences in our lives. Said it last week, and I'll say it again this week. I am indebted to the work of James Walden, a pastor in Columbia, South Carolina, for even beginning to understand the role and the influence of these idols in my own life and in the lives of all of us and in our churches. Regionalism is best understood via Wikipedia, and it was a credible source I checked. Regionalism is best understood by the following definition. It is the expression of a common sense of identity and purpose combined with the creation and implementation of institutions that express a particular identity and shape collective action within a geographical region. Everybody got that? Repeat it back. I'm kidding. What often happens with this regionalism in the South is that we equate Southern culture, Southern ethics, and Southern politics as synonymous with what life in the kingdom of God looks like. And so no more is the kingdom of God a counterintuitive thing to live into. It just becomes the easiest thing for us to live out. There's no threat of being considered weird or an outsider if regionalism affects your view of the kingdom of God, If the kingdom of God just simply becomes the best of Southern culture and ethics and politics, then we've living in it right now. Its prevalence is most readily seen in the saying, American by birth, Southern 
by the grace of God. Here you begin to see the idol for what it is. We begin to say our identity as Southerners, our identity as those from the South, how we live, how we talk, how we eat, how we have conducted ourselves since the South was formed is the best example of what life in the kingdom looks like. And over the years, that's morphed in probably the past 25 plus years, this regionalism has become full-blown Christian nationalism that stands in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. Which means the kingdom of God even stands contra to the United States of America. The United States, as great as it is to be a part of this country, the United States of America is not the paragon of kingdom of God virtues. The Republican Party is not strong enough to support the weight of the kingdom of God. The Democratic Party is not strong enough to support the weight of the kingdom of God. The Libertarians and the Independents are not strong enough to support the weight of the kingdom of God. Here's why this matters for us. We as a church hold a prophetic edge to our voice and our living and our ways of conducting ourselves when we can rightly see and call out societal and systemic sins that hide under the guise of our own regionalism. We will never think about the implications of redlining if we think the American South is the kingdom of God. We don't ever really have to think about the effects of racism if we think that the South is the kingdom of God. We don't have to think about the poor if we think that the South is the virtuous kingdom of God. We don't have to think about any of it if we think that America is the paragon of Christian virtue in the world today. But what the kingdom of God calls us to do is to know the truth of the Bible and its implications for our lives and then to speak truth to power in the same way that Jesus and the disciples and the followers of Jesus have done down through the ages. The SV Study Bible says the kingdom is more than simply the rule of the spirit within people since the kingdom will ultimately include the restoration of all creation. Here is, here is the most prevalent way you see Southern regionalism play out. It's called just preach the gospel. And the gospel becomes something that's very personal. It's very individualistic. And it has no sense of a society or a family being reconstituted around Jesus. We must always be examining if it is our inherent belief in the excellencies of the South or of America or the kingdom of God that is informing our life in public and how we address societal and systemic sins. When Jesus announces the kingdom of God, he didn't say, wait till the American South gets here, then you'll see it. Or wait till they discover this new land. Then you're really going to know. When they get constituted as a 50-state independent nation, that's when you'll really know what my kid. No, 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 no. 
The kingdom of God stands in opposition to every kingdom this world has ever known, our country included. And at the end of the day, our country and our beloved South will burn in the flames of eternity because it will not be part of the kingdom of God. And so we have to always be willing to examine, are we following the kingdom or are we following what we've always done? Which brings us to the second part of Southern identity as it plays into an idol that affects us. If you begin to really understand what it looks like to live for the kingdom of God in the South, it will put you in direct opposition to a lot of your family. It will put you at loggerheads with how most of our families, how I used to understand how to relate to the kingdom of God in the world today. And so when we see Jesus call the disciples, we're told that James and John left their father behind to follow Christ. So not only does the kingdom of God redefine our culture and our ethics and our politics as we seek to live under the righteous rule of Jesus, but it also redefines who our true family is. For those of us who have trusted Christ and are seeking to follow him, you and I now have more in common with a brother or sister in Christ in the Middle East than we do with our own brothers and sisters and other family who are not followers of Jesus. If you are a follower of Christ, you are part of a new family. You now have more in common with your brothers and sisters who have entered into God's family through the finished work of Jesus than you do with your own family who has never trusted Christ. This is where it gets really hard to be a committed follower of Jesus in the South, especially. Because most of us have followed Jesus at a no-cost bargain discipleship. Most of us have followed Jesus and lived within a kingdom that is far removed from what Jesus is going to show his life and his kingdom to be. And when you begin to understand the implications of the gospel, not only for eternity, but for right here and right now, it can make for some really uncomfortable moments. But here's the thing. If you, let, let, we're just gonna, if you were sharing the gospel with someone from a different faith, especially let's say you were to be sharing the faith with someone who was from an Islamic background, you know that there is a definite cost associated with their adherence to Christ as their Savior and following his teachings, right? Like we are all in agreement that there is a definite cost associated with what we're asking them to do. And we don't rush them through it. We don't dismiss them for having questions. We patiently and faithfully walk through until they understand the full implications and the full cost of what it means to follow Jesus. And as we work through Mark's gospel and as the gospel continues to confront these idols of the South that we are so largely unaware of, we're going to need a lot of grace and a lot of mercy with one another. There's a cost associated with following Jesus wherever you go and whatever you do. 
And so we must be willing to faithfully walk with one another through the hard times, through the questions, through the doubts, through the fears of what it looks like to actually live for Jesus and not for a Christianized version of our best South or our best family. As the kingdom redefines family, it means that we begin to change how we relate to both married and single people. It means it changes how we relate to those who have kids and those who do not have kids. It means it changes how we relate to the elderly and to the young among us. The redefinition or the reconstitution of the people of God around Jesus himself and how it fundamentally changes the definition of family means that we don't take our fundamental definition of family from culture but we take it from christ so that my heartbeat is for my brothers and sisters in the family of god we no longer rank each other on the hierarchy of are you married or single kids or no kids retired empty nesters what's your job all of how we understand family today is pushed aside and we first and foremost relate to one another as brothers and sisters in christ And so no matter how hard it is, we are to periodically examine whether or not we are seeking to please and follow our family's desires or the decrees of our Savior. I want to give you three things to avoid as we begin to see these idols more clearly in our own life. The first is boasting about your own awareness of these idols. You don't need to go on social media tonight and write a long expose paragraph about how now you're an expert in this southern idol of regionalism. What you need to do is allow it to humble you, to bring you to points of confession and repentance, and to bring you back to the scriptures to ask the Spirit to help you understand through your own reading, through your discipleship with others in the church, what it looks like to be a disciple who follows Jesus. And so we don't want to boast about our awareness. The second thing we want to avoid is attacking the same idol we were blind to maybe 20 minutes ago to go out and begin attacking that idol in others. When you become aware of a sin or an idol in your own life, the easiest thing to do is to then see it in everyone else's life and want to attack them for it. Let the grace of God humble you to walk alongside them, to talk with them, to gradually help them see the idol for themselves and trust that God will do the work that needs to be done in their heart. Third and lastly, we must not be dismissive of people who don't see or get it as quickly as we would like. Everybody moves at their own pace in understanding the implications of the gospel for their life, for our world, for their families, for the world that is to come. No, no, we don't all move lockstep together and we just like get frustrated and like sling the person that's way behind up to the front so we can catch up with them. We have to be willing to be patient. Walk with grace and truth and mercy and empathy with one another. But also walk with a new awareness of how we can help each other see these idols in our own life. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe, and then come follow me. Those are the words of Jesus. Those are the words we wrestle with. 
Those are the words that expose the most deep-seated idols in every society that has ever been. Would we be faithful to answer those questions with truth, with grace, with humility? And will we trust Christ to make us faithful members of his kingdom and obedient followers of his teaching? Let's pray.